Well, it is Mother's Day, and we want to say a happy Mother's Day to all of the moms, to all of the grandmothers, to all of the aunts and sisters and daughters and friends and motherly women who have contributed to our lives. We recognize you today, we celebrate you today, and uh, we say thank you to you today. If you are here, uh, whether you've got family or friends with you today, if you're a mom or you're a lady and you'd like to have a picture taken today, uh, we have a little photo booth set up out in the entryway and you can stop by there if you didn't on the way in and get a photograph uh, as a memory of Mother's Day. Uh, Just give us an email and we'll send that to you. If you don't have email, let us know how we can get a print to you and we will do that. Um, And this is a wonderful uh, gift that we want to give you today on Mother's Day. We're continuing a series titled All the Feels, and it it strikes me that Mother's Day is a day that can be surrounded with a lot of different emotions, and uh, some are are feeling warm emotions, and they're feeling gratitude and love and affection and fondness towards their mothers or mothers towards their children, Um, and that's right and good, and that is what we celebrate today, but also there's the acknowledgement that Mother's Day can bring some other feelings into the mix, uh, whether that's sorrow or regret or longing, or even anger or fear. We are complex emotional beings, and that's part of what this series is all about, is recognizing the broad range of human emotions and how the same event or the same day or the same thing can elicit a number of different emotions, not only within us as individuals, but as a family of families corporately. Uh, we bring those different emotions to the table. And so uh, all the feels seems like it it fits well uh, as we continue this story. Now, last week, uh, we looked at the subject of fear, and we talked about this idea that every instance of fear is an opportunity for faith, that every time fear wells up within us, there's an opportunity to respond to that fear in faith. And if you missed that message or you miss uh, any of the messages, we have a podcast, we have a website, we have different ways that you can hear that message and stay up to date uh, with us. It's not so much that it's a cumulative series, but if you miss one that is particularly meaningful to you, you want to be able uh, to go back and hear that. And so last week we looked at fear and this idea that fear is a legitimate response that actually serves us quite well uh, in survival and uh, it can over be overactive at times, though. It can paralyze us and inhibit our faith and inhibit our response to God. So we talked about all of those different things and really focused it on on Psalm 56, verse 3, where David says, when I am afraid, I will trust in God. That's where we got our big idea, our bottom line last week, that every instance of fear is an opportunity for faith. Today, we're going to be looking at love and longing and how these emotions that are associated with love and longing combine together in a number of different ways, and they express themselves through feelings, through affection, through various emotions that are associated with love, but also through the actions of love, through sacrificial love, and the various ways that love is expressed as the verb love, when we choose to love or respond in love to others. And so the depth and intensity of a mother's love sort of sets the backdrop for that, and uh, it will be... um, giving us some insights into the love that God has for us and how we can respond to his love uh, in that. But it'll be more as a launch pad or a foundation rather than a singular theme all the way through uh, because love is a really big topic. But we're told even in Scripture, in Isaiah 66, 13, we're told that God says to his people at the end of the book of Isaiah, he says, as a mother 
comforts her children, so will I comfort you. And so there is a strong link between the love that God has for us, the sacrificial love that God has for us. We can see at least a symbolism of that in the way that a mother loves her child. Our scripture today, there's a lot of different ones uh, to choose from, so I've, I really prayed and asked God, what, what do you want to say on this subject to, to this congregation? And landed on Psalm 63. So I want to read Psalm 63. If you've got one of our blue hardcover Bibles, that's on page 899. I'll read through it once, and then we'll come back and kind of consider it from a different, a number of different languages, or different angles, I should say, and look at the original language and, and how love uh, has gotten a little bit muddy, that word love and the different meanings that it can have as we say, I love this or I love that, or um, as we talk about love in our culture today. So here's what David had to say. Um, he writes this, we're told, from a desert. And so he, well, that's one of the reasons that I titled it Love and Longing, because, because our Our emotions of love often produce a longing within us if we're separated from the object of our love. And so here's what David has to say. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And so, as I mentioned, love is often used to describe one of the strongest emotional responses that we can have to something. And that's where it gets a little muddy because I can look into my wife's eyes and say, I love you. I can sing my praises to God and say, I love you. And, and a few minutes later, I can say, I love pizza. I really just, I love a good slice of pizza. Or I love the Cubs. Or I love my car. Or my wife could say, I love quilting. And we use this language to express our affinity towards something or our affection towards someone or our uh, interest in something. Um, And it's often contrasted with hate. Uh, But it also, you know, it involves a little bit of exaggeration or hyperbole uh, as it's often used today. And so this word love uh, has a number of different meanings, a number of different ways that we can express it, that we can verbalize it, that we can can describe it to someone. And it reminded me as I was preparing this message when, uh, when one of my children was was still in diapers, what was big enough that we wished they were no longer in diapers, and I won't tell you which one. He doesn't need to be embarrassed. Um, but I was in the middle of a particularly uh, difficult diaper change. And uh, this little guy, maybe two, two and a half, uh, he looks up at me and he says, I love you, Daddy. You're my best friend. And all the frustration and all the angst and all the just melted away, and I I was touched. And I wish it stopped there. I wish the story stopped there, because then he turned his head over, and he said, I love you, poopy diaper. You're my best friend. (laughs) 
And, uh, you know, that's an extreme example. But we do this sometimes. We, we take the, the accurate and appropriate expression of our love and our affinity and our affection for God, for those closest to us, for things that really matter. And then if we're not careful, we can trivialize that love by attaching the same language, the same words, to something that doesn't even hold a candle to the real object of our love. So the emotional side of love expresses that affection, that longing, that adoration, that admiration that we have for the object of our love. Interestingly enough, in Scripture, there are a number of different words that get translated as love. In the New Testament, we have at least four words that that we would translate as love. C.S. Lewis wrote a phenomenal book, and, and I don't have time to go into all the different nuances, but if this subject kind of elicits a little more interest in you, I would encourage you to pick up that book, or you can Google it, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. Wonderful, wonderful exposition of the four different words in the New Testament that are traditionally uh, translated as love. There's phileo, which is brotherly love, where we get the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. It's actually from the Greek word phileo. There is eros, which is the romantic love or erotic Love. There's storge, which would be familial love, the love between parent and child, brother and brother, sister and sister, uh, all those familial relationships. And then there's agape love, agape being the self-sacrificing surrender, the divine love, the unconditional love of God. So all these different words get translated as the single word love in our modern translation. So I would encourage you to dig in sometimes if you are uh, really studying that. We'll look and see uh, one of the most common words that is translated love in the Old Testament as we work through this psalm. Uh, We see it in verse 3. But in verse 1 and 2, I wanted to back up here and, and see how this starts. How this psalm, this song, this poem that David is writing as he's out in the desert, as he's separated from God, as he's maybe separated from other people that he loves. And he starts this out, and it's very personal. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's taking his physical reality of thirst and being alone, and he's making correlations to his spiritual reality and thirsting and seeking for God, much the way that his body is thirsting and seeking for water. And he says, I have seen you in your sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. And I believe there's an element of love and there's an element of this where we thirst and we seek and we long for the beloved. He talks about beholding God in his sanctuary. And he has that memory that carries him. And, and if, you, uh, if you're separated from the object of your love, you're longing for it. You're, you're thirsting for it. You're seeking it. And so he starts that way. And it reminded me of, of a time in my life when we had our firstborn child. And it was all I could do every day to get up and get dressed and go to work. And I would get to work and I would have a hard time, you know, imagining what, what, is, what is Keaton doing at home with, with Heather. And I couldn't wait to get home. And I was in insurance at the time. And so I, a lot of my work had to be done in the evenings when people could meet and go on. And I, I was really struggling to, to tear myself away. And when I was away from, from this little guy, I just had a hard time being away from him. And, and so I can identify with how David is experiencing this separation from God that he is experiencing, having been there, having been in the sanctuary, been in the temple, and seen God, beheld his glory, and to now to be so far away from him. 
Now, in verse 3, uh, we get a little bit of insight. He's, he tells us why he's feeling so strongly about this. He's because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. Because your love, and the, the love that he experiences from God, the love that he feels from God, is better than life, he says. That is why he has this response. It's, it's the reality of God's steadfast love and his experience of that steadfast love that has elicited the emotional response from David. And the word that we translate as love here is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed. Sometimes it will have a C in front of it, um, but, but it's this Greek word, or I'm sorry, this Hebrew word hesed, and it, it has to do with the goodness and the kindness and the loving kindness, particularly of God. That, that this love is used to describe the divine love of God that comes down to his people. This, this loving Kindness And the verb form means to do good, to be good, to be kind, or to be reliably merciful. And these are all descriptions of God and the way that he interacts with us and the way that he has interacted with his people. And so that is the love that God uh, has, has given to David that he is responding to. It's that loving kindness, that mercy of God. And as we see in this psalm, there are actually a number of different attributes of God's hesed love, of his loving kindness towards us. And David describes those for us. In verse 3, he says that this love is better than life. This love brings us satisfaction, he says in verse 5. It is a help to us. And in verse 8, it literally upholds us. So it, it comes to us, it satisfies us, it assists us and helps us, and it literally upholds us or undergirds us as we go through life. And David picks up on all of this and describes these various attributes of God's loving kindness towards us. And then we can also see in this psalm David's response, which can also become our response because this love comes to us from God and how we respond to it is up to us. And we see David responding a number of different ways. In verse 3, he says that he will glorify God. Because your love is better than life, I will glorify God. You In verse 4, 5, and 7, he talks about praise. That's why we gather, and that's why we sing some songs, and that's why we, uh, we fill our lives with the opportunities to express our praise and our worship back to God. He also lists surrender as a response in verse 4, that we would surrender to God. In verse 6, he talks about, I will think of you in the middle of the night when I wake up and I can't get back to sleep. I'm going to think, I'm going to meditate upon God, upon his love for me. I'm going to remember God. I'm going to remember his love for me. In verse 8 is probably the the strongest. He says, I'm going to cling to you. Because of your love, I will cling to you. I will rely upon you. I will trust in you, and I will cling to you and you alone. And so we see David interacting with God and talking about the attributes of God's divine love and about his response to God's love, and yet we see those same characteristics in our loving relationships with each other, that, that we experience love as relational beings from each other, from those that are close to us, from our family and our friends and so forth. And, and it's interesting, as I studied this and as I prayed through this, I, I realized it's not wrong at all. It's not wrong at all to honor and to praise and to give thanks and to remember and to think about the people that we love. But there is a danger that occurs when we elevate people to the same level 
as God, when we elevate people to the same level as God, because only God is fully worthy of this level of glory and praise and adoration. And so if we are not careful, we will, we will cheapen our love for God by elevating things that are not God to the same level as God. Does that make sense? It's fairly nuanced, and, and yet I see it happening more and more in our culture, more and more in our culture where we've, we've elevated the unholy to the level of holy, and that has not changed who God is, but it has changed how we interact with Him and how we express our adoration to Him by putting other things on the same level. And so... This is what the Bible calls idolatry. And we don't, we don't think about idolatry. Most of you don't have a little idol on your mantle or on your table that you worship and pray to and those types of things. Most people don't do that, but they do have a big shiny box on the, t- on the wall that they stare at for hours and hours a day or that they sacrifice in order to purchase and have a bigger and better and nicer and clearer picture and better sound and everything else. Or they idolize vacations or they idolize people or they idolize a number of different things. Anytime that we take something that is not God and put it on the same level as God, we have created an idol where we will sacrifice our relationship with him in order to have this thing that becomes idolatry. And so I wanted to, uh, to finish and spend our time, the remainder of our time, focusing on this idea that we love others best when we love God first. That's our bottom line today, that when God is first, when he is foremost, when he occupies the first slot and there is not something next to him, that enables us to love him as we ought to love him, to love ourselves as we ought to love ourselves, and then to love those around us as we ought to love those around us. This is why Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, that our love for God takes first place. And then, as we love God, and as He is first in our lives, we are then able to love ourselves as we ought to, so that we can love the people around us as we ought to. We love others best when we love God first. So I want to give you a healthy order of relationships, that we have all these different relationships in our lives, and that they can get out of order, and we can put one in the, in the first slot that really belongs in the second or third slot, or vice versa, and there will be trouble that comes from that. So the first order of relationships, as we think about our love relationships, as we think about the various emotions that we attach to these various love relationships, that God would be in the first spot. And that he would be first and foremost, not just first among equals, but but separate and above and over everything else. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, without exception, without equivalent, that he and he alone is the object and the subject of our first love. Because when we do this, when we love God and we see God and we know God as he truly is and we respond to him with our first and greatest love, then we have the vertical relationship in our life correct. And this enables us to love ourselves as we ought to love. We've talked about this before, this idea that you can only really understand yourself to the degree that you understand God because you were created in his image. And to the degree that we are confused about who God is, we will also be confused about who we are because of who he created us to be. 
And genuine love of God results in a genuine love of self because we recognize who he is and who he created us to be, that he gave us his image, that he called us into relationship with us, with him, sorry. And we respond to that, taking on his image. We love others best when we love God first. Then we start to move into the horizontal relationships that we have in the world around us. First is our vertical relationship with God. Next is our horizontal relationships. And if you're married, your spouse is to be next on the list. That we start with our love of God and then we have the love of our spouse and this human relationship. And that's why when we go through a marriage ceremony, we use language like, in forsaking all others, devote yourself to this person. And we make those wedding vows, and we put that person first in our human relationships. So here's God, here's our human relationships, it's our spouse. And we, we devote ourselves to loving our spouse. We also use the language of leaving and cleaving. We leave our family of origin, and we cleave, and the two become one flesh. Think of all the language and all the imagery that he's used in the idea of a husband and wife coming together and creating a new relationship, a new entity, essentially. And that's why the biblical order is that we would leave and cleave our family of origin, leave and cleave and become one with our spouse prior to having children so that there is a merging and a union that takes place with the husband and that wife. And we establish that and we allow that to retain primary status. So there's God, then there's our spouse. And I remember when, when we had our first child and uh, a wise man in the church came to me and he said, you want to know, know what the best thing you can do for that little boy is? And I said, yeah, I do. He said, love his mom. Love his mom. Love his mom and be devoted to her and don't let anything come between you and her because a healthy household is going to do more for that child than anything else you can do for that child. Don't let that child come between you and his mom. Love his mom. Love his mom. Next, you might have guessed it, is children. If you have children, your children are next on the list. And we are to nurture them. We are to provide for them. We are to protect them. We are to instruct them. We are to love them and love their mother or father. And in loving those above the list, we love those uh, that are in front of us. We love our children by loving their parents. We love our children by loving God and by teaching them to honor and obey their parents and God. You see how these relationships work, and when we get them mixed up and we put things in the wrong slots, it can create all kinds of havoc in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. So we teach our children to love God authentically, primarily, daily, that they don't just see us going to church on Sunday morning, but they see us having a deep, rich relationship with God, that we spend time together as a family in his word and in prayer and in interacting with each other about the things that have happened in our day and our response to them. We see this order, God first, spouse second, children third, and then we have our other family and our close friends and those that we have made commitments to, those that we have relational uh, commitments with and relational history and relational equity with them. Because the, the greatest commandment does talk about our neighbor as ourself, and we've sort of set up concentric circles uh, in those relationships with our neighbors. There's our spouse, there's our children, there's our family and close friends, and the love that we have with God flows through us into all of them. And finally, then we have our neighbors 
so to speak, in the world around us. That there are those that are outside of our family, those that are outside of our friends, those that we do not yet know very well, those that we interact with as acquaintances or as strangers. And yet Scripture and the Gospels in particular teach us how we ought to interact with the world around us, how we ought to interact with our neighbor and who our neighbor is. And it all flows through a right relationship with these various classes of people. And so you might be asking, well, what if, I, what if I'm not married? What if I don't have kids? Well, you just ratchet the ones down below. And if you, don't have, if you don't have a spouse and you don't have children, then you have more love to give to your family and close friends and to your neighbors and the world around you. I was reminded as I was thinking through that how Paul said, you know, it's better, it's better that I am not married and don't have children so that I can focus exclusively on loving the whole world. And he was a minister and a missionary to the whole world. And so you, you don't stop loving. You, you reallocate the love that you have into these other areas. And you develop your relationship with God. And you focus on those things. And so this, this can be helpful if there is an area in your life where you might recognize, I think I've put something out of order. I think I've put my spouse or my children above my love and my relationship with God. And I can't love them as I should because I'm not loving God and knowing God as I ought to. And oftentimes when a young couple comes in and sits down in my office and says, we just had our first child and, and uh, the child has become the focus of both of their attention to the exclusion of God, to the exclusion of each other. And we have a conversation. Well, what was your relationship like a year ago? Oh, you know, we got up every day, we did our Bible study together, we went on date nights on a regular basis, we, we, we talked long into the night, and now we've got this little person, and he takes all of our time, or she takes all of our time and our focus and our attention, and it's really easy to elevate something up beyond what is healthy, to displace God, to displace our spouse, and so on and so forth. I see, I see both guys and ladies, that, that get a circle of friends and they do things together so much with that circle of friends that it can displace one of their closer family relationships. And so it's really important to make sure that you have these in the right order and the right priority and that you're investing regularly in all of these relationships, giving and receiving love regularly in all of these relationships. And so as you seek to apply this, I think the question that I would ask you first, is God in the top slot? Does verse 1 resonate with you at a deep level that you're seeking him, you're longing for him, you're thirsting for him? As somebody who'd been out in the desert would correlate that. Modern trends in church attendance would say otherwise, that once you get about halfway through the baby boomers, Regular attendance no longer means coming weekly or 45-plus times a year. It's more like once or twice a month for Gen Xers and Millennials, maybe even less as we go through the generations. There's not that thirsting and that longing and that, that desire to be in the presence of God, to be in the presence of fellowship, to be in His sanctuary. And what does it look like on a daily basis? Do you wake up eager to connect with Him, eager to spend time in His Word and time in prayer? Time and worship. What occupies your mind throughout the day? Is God in the top slot and what would be the evidence of that? And then you can move on down the list and are any of your relationships out of order? 
might be a question that you could ask yourself and spend some time thinking through. And a follow-up question would be, do I expect somebody to put me higher on their list than I belong? Have I asked somebody to make me first when I really should be second or third or fourth? Because the degree to which we do that will bring unhealth into their lives and in their relationships and in our relationships. So it's important that we not only get the order right for ourselves, but that we don't expect somebody to put us higher on the list than they ought to be. Because that's where all this dysfunction comes from. And that's where all these challenges and difficulties come from. And so I want to encourage you with that. And I want to encourage you to do some self-assessment and to ask yourself, God, are you in the right spot? And are the different people in my life in the right spot? And if he shows you that that's not the case, then he is a God of grace and he is a God of forgiveness and you can, you can, he will help you. He will help you put it in the right order and you can, you can make a list of the things that you will do, the action steps that you will take in order to, to rectify that and put things, put things right. And so I want to encourage you, however uh, you choose to respond, to respond in faith to the message today and to respond open-handedly and open-heartedly to God and to, to act upon what he reveals to you. As always, the altars are open. Uh, we do this uh, every Sunday. You have an opportunity to respond in faith. You can come to one of the outside altars, and that's indicating to those around you that you would like somebody to come and just put a hand on your shoulder and pray with you if you come to one of the outside altar benches. And you can kneel there, you can sit there. Uh, somebody, a, a pastor, an elder, an LBA member, uh, will see you and will come and put a hand on you and, and pray with you and pray for you. If you come to one of these center two benches, uh, that's telling everybody, I'm going to pray alone today. I, I, I just want to do some business with God. I want to interact with him. I want to make a commitment to him. I want to receive some grace. I want to intercede on behalf of somebody else. There's a cross over here with some slips of paper. You can write out a prayer request. You can write out somebody that has come to mind during the service. Maybe somebody who does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You can write out their name in a prayer and roll it up and place it on that cross. And... Uh, Members of our prayer team come in and pray over those. We don't take them down and read them. We just pray, knowing that God hears, God sees, God knows. And you can stay right where you are and make an altar where you're seated and and interact and respond with God. But however you choose, my prayer each and every Sunday is that as we come into this place and as we encounter God and as we see something from his word or we experience something in worship, that we would be a people who respond in faith to him. Will you bow with me now as we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you, and, and we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word that you have spoken to us, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you reveal your will to us. And we thank you for your great loving kindness, the way that it upholds us and supports us, the way that it helps us, the way that it satisfies us in a way that nothing else can. And we pray, God, that our response to you and to your great love for us would put you in the right place as the priority in our lives, as the first and foremost object of our love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.